From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement The Lansing Community College occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples. In particular, the city of Lansing and LCC reside on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. In this episode of Land Stories, we're going to look at the history behind that land acknowledgement statement. And what I mean by that is not just the statement itself. We're not going to uh, only look at the reason why that statement was put recently into Lansing Community College Communications. We're going to look at the reason why that statement came into existence to begin with. And that's a broad story that's going to take us back hundreds of years to a time before Lansing Community College existed, to a time before the city of Lansing existed, to a time before the folks who would come to name this area, Ingham County, Lansing, uh, ever lived here. And what, of course, we're talking about is the history of the indigenous peoples of this area who are mentioned in that land acknowledgement statement. Uh, the Three Fires Confederacy, the Ojibwa, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. And this is a story that is told in many ways, although uh, ways that aren't necessarily inclusive of everything that happened. And I think that to start out my thoughts on this, uh, the story that I'm going to tell you, uh, I will ask your permission to allow me to dip back into my mind uh, quite a few years. Let's go back to the early 1980s. And I am in elementary school in Kalamazoo County, Michigan. While I remember two things clearly about the lessons that we were taught, of the folks who came here and the folks that lived here, here being in Michigan, before the folks that came here, those would be the uh, white Euro-Americans. And those two things were as follows. Number one, there were people that lived here before Europeans got here, and they were called Indians. The second thing I learned about those folks is that they were really nice. They gave the Europeans lots of stuff, especially food like turkey and corn. And that is why we get a Thursday in November off of school so we can eat turkey and corn with our mom and dad and grandpa and grandpa. And that is called Thanksgiving. And those really nice Indians gave those really nice pilgrims who wore the funny hats the corn and the turkey. And that is how America came to be founded. Now, you may be thinking, well, that sounds kind of like a story I've been told. And you may also be thinking, boy, that sounds pretty simple. There had to have been more to the story than that. And well, there was. And this episode isn't about the first Thanksgiving, so I care not to dwell too much further upon that, rather than mentioning it in the context of this is really the extent of what I was taught when I was a little kid about quote-unquote Indians, about the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And I suspect that I'm not the only 
child growing up in Michigan in the United States of America back in the uh, early 80s, sitting in an elementary classroom learning about this for the first time. I suspect this is something that happened elsewhere around the United States and has some form of it now. When I got a bit older is when I learned that there was a much more complex story of who lived in Michigan before Europeans arrived and what that arrival of Europeans entailed. And to bookend my learning of this would not really be possible because I'm still learning much about this. And I hope you are too. One should never close his learning off in life. After all, to do so, I think, would be to limit the great opportunity that we have at understanding this fascinating place we inhabit called planet Earth and our fellow humanity writ large. So let's take that story back then to, well, we'll take it back thousands of years and then skip over thousands of years and end up around about the year 1800. What we know about this area, we, meaning collective humanity, those that have chosen to study the subject, those that have stumbled upon evidence, sometimes quite accidentally, is limited when one considers that there are thousands of years of humanity having lived in Michigan, the southern part of Michigan specifically, as the focus today of this episode, uh, that we just don't know about. About, uh, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, somewhere around there, I was on a, um, was on an 80-foot boat. One might call it a ship. About, I don't know, 15 miles or so offshore on uh, Lake Huron, northern part of Lake Huron. And I was on the ship as part of a uh, National Endowment for the Humanities workshop that I took part in over the course of a couple weeks in the summer. And the purpose of that workshop was to examine the history of shipwrecks along the Great Lakes. And maybe in a future episode, I will uh, share with you some of those stories because they're quite fascinating. But for now, I'm going to share with you a part of this um, workshop I took part in that didn't have anything to do with shipwrecks. We were on a uh, ship that had a uh, scientist on board who had a remote-operated vehicle, an ROV, which is basically a little robot that's about the size of a uh, one of those little mini beer kegs you can buy in the store that holds about five liters of beer. And it uh, has a camera on it. It's tethered to a uh, control device that the uh, operator operates, in our case, on the deck of the ship. And then it has a nice uh, television screen that it hooks up to. We had about a, I don't know, 30-inch monitor on board the ship that uh, the images that the remote-operated vehicle beamed through its tether in the 250 feet of water or so we were in up to that lovely television screen sitting on the deck of the ship. And we were looking at a shipwreck that was sitting in uh, that part of Lake Huron, the bottom of it, and I happened to discuss with the uh, gentleman who brought the ROV with him what his research interests were, I figured it wasn't only shipwrecks because you can look at a lot of stuff with ROVs. And as it turns out, it wasn't. He shared with me a story of a research project that he became aware of somewhat recently, recently at this time, would have been the late first decade of the uh, 2000s, 
that involved discovering, uh, using ROVs and uh, diving actually, ancient caribou hunting grounds on the bottom of Lake Huron. And I said, wow, that's really amazing. Uh, tell me a little bit more about it. And so he started to tell me all about this research that was underway, and I think it was being conducted by the University of Michigan at the time, that uh, discovered what scientists believed to be, and later on very much uh, affirmed were, caribou hunting grounds. Basically giant gauntlets that were set up to force caribou into a, uh, basically a tunnel, a gauntlet that had been set up to direct them into one point where the ancient hunters would force them through via spooking them into a stampede, and then the hunters at the other end of the gauntlet would uh, kill their prey and have a feast on caribou. And I was fascinated to learn about the discovery of this because it suggested that there were people hunting caribou in what is now called the Great Lakes region of North America thousands of years ago. In order for these caribou hunting grounds to have been uh, built by humans, they would have had to have been there around eight or 9,000 years ago because that was the last time that Lake Huron had a water level that was low enough that those hunting grounds would have been on land. Obviously, people did not dive uh, hundreds of feet below the water thousands of years ago and hunt caribou down there. That would have been preposterous. So, we know through the discovery of these ancient caribou hunting grounds, through the discovery of some other archaeological sites that are not under Lake Huron, such as the uh, Ganey site near Flint, that there have been people living in Michigan for thousands of years, long before Europeans ever set eyes on this land. Now, it's good to know that, but what do we know about those people who lived here at the time? Well, that unfortunately, uh, is answered by saying not as much as we would like to. The biggest challenge that's always existed in uh, studying the pre-European peoples who lived in Michigan is that at the time, they did not have the type of written language that uh, Europeans possessed, and the absence of that type of written language has therefore made, uh, made it hard to study them because Civilization societies that leave writing behind are usually a lot easier to study uh, their thoughts, their ideas, their day-to-day -day practices because, well, they wrote something down about them, and if we can read their writing, uh, writing is an incredible tool to get into the mind of the individual who created uh, said documentation. So some of the earliest written uh, sources we have of the indigenous peoples of Michigan they weren't written by those folks. They were written by French Jesuits. These were uh, Christian missionaries that came to Michigan uh, starting in the 1600s and especially in the 1700s. And their, their writing was descriptive but extremely biased, uh, as we would say nowadays. The, the Jesuits were on a mission to convert the native peoples to Christianity, and they believed that the evidence that they could find within those indigenous peoples' cultures, that they were either heathens in believing in false gods or idols, or they were in some way savage and barbaric, 
would be evidence that would further justify the sort of by any means necessary conversion of those folks to Christianity that uh, certain Jesuits were motivated towards. So those sources aren't always as helpful as one might think. But I don't want to jump completely over that several thousands of years of history between when those ancient caribou hunting grounds were put down and when the Jesuits arrived here in Michigan, because there's obviously a lot of time to pass in between. And what we know about that time comes from the indigenous sources themselves. And the Anishinaabeg are the three fires people that are mentioned in the Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement Statement that I begin this episode by reading out. And the Anishinaabeg lived in Michigan at the time of the arrival of Europeans and likely lived here for centuries, if not longer, prior to the arrival of Europeans. The evidence of this comes in the form of the traditional history of the Anishinaabeg, and it also comes in the anthropological and historical studies that have been conducted of the ancient Americas over the last centuries since Europeans and their descendants have lived here. And the ancient history of the Anishinaabeg is one of migration, migration to the Great Lakes region from lands along the eastern seaboard of North America. And the Mi'kmaq indigenous peoples who live in the northeastern part of the United States and into the maritime provinces of Canada, they are ethnically related to the Anishinaabeg. And this is um, great evidence. It's very strong evidence that shows us that indeed there is a strong connection between the Great Lakes indigenous Americans and those of the northeast. When Europeans arrived into the Americas, the continent was populated quite extensively, but not evenly distributed in terms of where the people lived. So the west coast of North America was very densely populated uh, relative to the, say, desert southwest, where because of the lack of resources, population densities were not nearly as heavy. And then in the eastern part of North America, what anthropologists years ago dubbed the quote-unquote eastern woodlands, population densities varied primarily uh, based on the availability of resources as well. And this part of North America, the Great Lakes region, had a population density that was fairly sparse, but also varied quite greatly in subsistence patterns. So we think of the indigenous peoples of this part of the Americas as being quote-unquote hunter-gatherers. As the title suggests, this is an old uh, but still widely used anthropological term that suggests that people made their living off hunting and gathering. And the hunter-gatherer lifestyle is uh, suggested by anthropologists and historians to be one that uh, involved fairly sparsely populated regions because hunter-gatherers, it was believed, needed great stretches of land to be able to support themselves off wild game and wild plants. Now, 
even that terminology, game. Game is a, uh, is a very Eurocentric term, actually, because it suggests that to take an animal in the wild uh, to eat, as opposed to slaughtering livestock, is some type of a sport activity. And that would be because in medieval Europe, which is where this terminology um, gains popularity, those who hunted wild game were indeed usually uh, wealthy noblemen engaged in some sort of recreation. So that terminology aside, the uh, picture of life here in this part of the Americas at the, uh, the point that Europeans arrived, let's say roughly the year 1600, 1650, that time period is one where society looked very, very different than the society that Europeans uh, came from. European society was rigidly hierarchical in a way that was easily recognized. And that is a really very important point of emphasis in a way that was easily recognized. Indigenous societies were very poorly understood by Europeans when they arrived here. And even the Jesuit priest, who actually made a more concerted effort to understand the indigenous societies, effort that they made because they believed they had to get to know the people before they could convert them to Christianity, even they, in the end, exhibited a very poor understanding of what was actually going on. And the reason for this is because indigenous societies were not uh, arranged in a way that Europeans could easily recognize as something that was comparable to how they lived. So the French were the Europeans who arrived here in uh, what we now call Michigan first. And French society in the 1600s was rigidly hierarchical. It was very easily recognized. You had the monarchy and the noble families who owned all the land that existed at the top of the hierarchy. And then you had the church, the Catholic church, which essentially functioned as a nobility uh, in and of itself, and a very wealthy one at that. It owned lots of land in France, and bishops had a great degree of political and economic power in France. So they were very easily recognizable as a... Uh, nobility within the, themselves, and then you had the rest of society who worked the land that the nobility owned, and they were clearly at a lower point in the social hierarchy, and everybody in France recognized this, whether or not they agreed with it or not, they recognized it. And eventually, France undergoes a great revolution at the end of the 1700s that upends the social order, and that social order that existed prior to that Revolution, the one I am describing, becomes known as the Ancien Regime, the old ruling order of France. Now, the Ancien Regime produced a culture, therefore, that when finding itself on the shores of the Americas, did not recognize or relate to the social orders that were here. And land, land usage, land ownership, subsistence, ways of living turn out to be probably one of the greatest aspects of indigenous life that Europeans found very difficult to understand. Certainly the case with the French here in Michigan. 
on top of that, gender roles in uh, French society in the 1600s were also very rigid in how people understood them. Rigid in the sense that when we're talking about gender roles, we're talking about men and women, and what men and women do are expected to do and are believed to do by their very nature in society. And gender roles are oftentimes tied closely into what people think of children, too, and how children are raised. And this would be a third, sort of the major differences uh, between the societies that the French discovered when they came into Michigan uh, compared to what they were used to back in Europe. Uh, European children in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, and we'll say the 1600s falls into that early modern period, lived a life that I think most people nowadays would find, uh, well, let's just say unrecognizable as to how children were viewed, how they were treated, and therefore how they were raised. Children in 1600s France were very much viewed as mini-adults, mini-adults that had to do what the big adults told them, more or less without question, and the children were valued primarily as uh, agricultural laborers. And that's not to say that parents back then didn't love their children. They almost most certainly did. And we know that from some of the very uh, touching and, and emotional writings that uh, people left behind of their children, and including those that exhibited a great despair over the, well, the society that the children were born into. People felt like they really had no choice but to raise the children to be sort of mini adults. And as soon as they were old enough to walk and work out in the fields for long enough, well, they did. And that was really the life that children had. It wasn't, it wasn't a world that was very different from adults. And, and children and adults worked side by side one another throughout their lives. Now, when Europeans arrived in the Americas and when they arrived in Michigan, children in some ways did have one common behavioral characteristic the Europeans could recognize. It was actually that. It was the fact that they were side-by-side adults. And Europeans could recognize as well that the Anishinaabe raised their children, whether the French realized it or not that they were doing it is, you know, perhaps not necessarily clear either, but they were raised with an expectation of gender roles being fulfilled. So boys were raised by men, girls were raised by women, not exclusively, but in order for boys to be able to grow up and do what men were expected to do in indigenous societies, they uh, were taught by men to do what men did. And men were recognized by Europeans who wrote about them anyways as primarily hunting in terms of their uh, role in society. Women were where agriculture was practiced, actually, were very much the farmers, and they uh, raised girls accordingly to uh, work the fields. Now, agriculture wasn't as practiced nearly as prominently here in Michigan uh, as it was in other parts of the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans, but the Potawatomi, those folks who uh, lived in what is now Lansing, Ingham County, uh, prior to the arrival of Europeans, were uh, certainly more extensive agriculturalists than the Odawa and the Ojibwa who lived uh, further north. And the reason for that is the same reason why Michigan in the year 2022 has a lot more farms south of 
the big glacial moraine that stripes right over the middle part of the lower peninsula, uh, extending from the Saginaw Basin all the way over to the uh, west side of the peninsula, it's because of soil. When the glacier retreated that created that great moraine, uh, it left good soil south of the retreat and not as good a soil north of the, the retreating line. So where that moraine ended up forming. So the practice of agriculture, again, limited compared to other parts of the Americas, but in the southern part of Michigan, uh, the Potawatomi did farm. They didn't farm as extensively as other agricultural communities, societies did, but it did encompass a fairly significant part of their diet. And that's actually a very important thing to keep in mind because when the very first substantial wave of uh, white settlers crossed the Appalachian Mountains and set their eyes on the lands in this part of what would become the United States, farming is what was on their mind. And one of the entire justifications for taking indigenous lands was always this idea that indigenous peoples didn't use their land. Yes, that is what you just heard. Europeans and later uh, white Americans oftentimes justified the seizure of Indian lands, of indigenous peoples' lands, by claiming that the indigenous peoples didn't use their land. They lived on it, but they didn't use it. And land usage in the eyes of Europeans, be that the French, but especially the British, when we're talking in the colonial context of the middle part of the Americas, and then later on the Americans, after the United States gains its independence from Britain, that mindset that existed amongst those people at the time with regards to land was land was only used if it was farmed or if it was built upon. So a stretch of land that had farms on it, a stretch of land that had a city built on it, uh, a stretch of land that had a port built, if it was coastal land, for example, that was land that was being used. And the usage of land in the European and later the American uh, mindset of property ownership was absolutely vital in determining whether or not one could claim ownership. Meaning, if in the eyes of, of European property law and later American property law, and this is actually rooted back in uh, ancient Rome, uh, if land wasn't used, even the person who occupied that land didn't have uh, a claimant of ownership. Land had to be used in order for it to be properly claimed to be owned. And this is going to be a major justification that the United States, again, is going to use when it comes to uh, appropriation of indigenous lands. The fact that the Potawatomi did engage in some farming turned out to be a problem in, the, in this mindset, this legal justification, as well as a cultural mindset uh, that the American government uses uh, in the 1800s to get a hold of indigenous lands. And that's where we're going to leave off uh, this episode, part one of a three-part series on indigenous lands in Michigan. And where, when, why, and how uh, the land of uh, Michigan, and in particular the southern part of Michigan where Lansing Community College now sits, 
came to be appropriated and taken from the indigenous peoples and thereby fallen in the hands of uh, others. Next episode, we will, therefore, continue looking at indigenous mid-Michigan. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.